everybody, and welcome back to 80s All Over. This is one of our bi-monthly bonus episodes for our wonderful patrons over at Patreon. And Drew, I think that we've killed that running gag where I can't pronounce Patreon. I think that's dead. (laughs) Did you just finally get worn down by people saying, no, no. And, you know, I know what words are supposed to sound like. You're just not going to argue with the unwashed masses anymore? Yeah, when I look at the word P-A-T-R-E-O-N, that's Patreon. I'm sorry. It just is. No, it is Patreon. You're right. You, you are correct now. Uh, what did I used to say? Patreon? Yes, you used to say Patreon. <laughs> is that what I used to say? That's not what I used to say. Yes, that's totally what you used to say. All right. You know what? I, I don't want to do this podcast anymore. I want to retire. We're going to just switch over to Marvel all over and talk about Marvel movies forever. Well, they'll make enough, so... Um, we are here to discuss a very special thing, Drew, on this bonus episode. Uh, and why don't you tell our listeners what it is we'll be discussing? Uh, you sent a very vague idea, and I like it because it's broad enough that there's a lot of room to talk. And it's also specific enough that we won't go all day. Um, and you kind of brought up 80s movie musicals. And it's interesting because, like I told you, I just saw the other day they put out a video that is sort of the commercial slash preview for the Moulin Rouge stage version that they're doing and it seems like they do that with everything now everything gets a stage version everything gets a live version and it made me wonder what kind of 80s musicals could make that jump could there be a blues brothers broadway show oh god shut your fucking mouth that would make me so happy and i'm not uh, a staged guy i have not seen many stage productions uh i I like obviously i'd like uh to see a play or a musical on stage but I live in Philly, not New York, and they're kind of prohibitively expensive for a guy like me. But uh, I do love movie musicals, and the 1980s is where my love of movie musicals was born, and I'm betting it did that same thing that happened for you. So what was your entry point? You know, like most movie nerds, uh, if you're a kid, you've dealt with musicals growing up. You can't escape them. You know, The Wizard of Oz is probably the first musical that most kids deal with. Yeah. Um, and and But I, I, I think that... Uh, little boys at my age uh, were, you know, uh, just musicals were not that interesting. Uh, I, I liked action, horror, sci-fi. But then in 1986, I went to see a movie that changed my whole freaking life. Now, it just turned me into a big musicals fan. And th- that film, of course, is Frank Oz's adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors. And it's funny because you can honestly say that all of the modern Disney era, everything from Little Mermaid and Oliver and Company on, all of it begins with Little Shop of Horrors. Because if those guys had not had that show and it had not been a hit, Disney would not have put them to work on their films and they wouldn't have had that Beauty and the Beast era. I just don't think it would have been the same. Drew, of course, is referring to the brilliant songwriting team of Mencken and Ashman. Oh, and no. uh, they they, they uh, helped turn a uh, cult film from Roger Corman starring Jack Nicholson into a viable, vibrant, a, a beloved stage play. And then they turned it into a film and that film was a hit. And as Drew said, that probably did a lot of, uh, did a lot to get them the job on Little Mermaid. Not only to get them the job, but also when you listen to what they did so well in Little Shop of Horrors, which was they specifically by setting it in the fifties and playing with fifties music and playing with the sort of doo-wop form for the Greek chorus, they made it very clear that they could write basically anything. And so, like, when you look at what the Disney films are, they lean so heavily on that show business tradition. 
And they never were that before then. Like the modern Disney musical and what we grew up with, the Jungle Book era, like the Sherman Brothers stuff, totally different kinds of musicals. Yeah. And what's interesting about musicals in the 80s is that they really were dead for a while. I mean, like if you grew up in the 60s, musicals were pretty prevalent. Uh, If you grew up in the 80s, musicals was almost like, do they still make these anymore? So I thought it might be interesting to go through the the decade, maybe chronologically, uh, rattle off some musicals from each year, and that'll give our listeners an idea of of how not I want I don't want to say extinct, but how on life support or how on the endangered species list musicals seem to be in the eighties. I uh, Drew, obviously, I think we would both agree that the Blues Brothers is the best musical of nineteen eighty. And a great movie musical period. I would argue John Landis is one of the few modern directors who has not only repeatedly shown that he has musical chops, but I think who gets how musicals are supposed to make you feel. When a musical number kicks in, man, the hair on the arm should stand up, and the Blues Brothers does it over and over. There are so many good numbers in that, whether it's the James Brown number, which always kills me, or Aretha Franklin in the cafe, or... Just them on stage at the end. I love oh, everybody needs somebody is that mm-hmm. whole sequence the way it's shot cut. I love that. I love that concert sequence. Uh, but there were other musicals in 1980. Let's rattle through those real quick. Drew, give me a lyric on the apple. Oh my god. Um, what's the song? I want to. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna cut. There's like there's one song that's nothing but some people singing about coming. Um, yeah, that movie is bananas and. And maybe the death of disco, if there, if anything could have put the heart, the knife in the heart, I hope it was that film. Oh, well, funny you'd say that, because in the same year, we also got Can't Stop the Music. I don't know what song that was. And I believe at the end of the year, didn't we also get a ELO musical? The Apple, the Blues Brothers, Can't Stop the Music, Fame, uh, the, the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, The Jazz Singer, Popeye, and Xanadu. Now, see, Popeye, I could see them doing on stage now. That movie has become such a cult item, and that score is so beloved, whether it's, you know, PTA repurposing it or it shows up in places now. That would be really interesting to do. Without hyperbole, without fear of exaggeration, if they turned Altman's Popeye into a musical, I would walk to New York City. That would be amazing. It, it really would. And I'm surprised because Disney, I think Disney and Paramount still technically own that. I'm really surprised they haven't gone in and done something with it because they've got to know that there is a big cult audience for that film now. All right. So, so Drew, generally speaking, 1980, uh, the Blues Brothers, Fame, and Popeye would be the good ones. Yeah. And then the Apple, Can't Stop the Music, Woo. Jazz Singer, and Xanadu. See, and Jazz Singer might be one of the worst of, of all with great music. But yeah, there there are some fun musicals. 1980, I would give it a B plus for musicals. Yeah, I would say the the thing about Xanadu is they have good songs in them. It's not that they are unrelentingly without merit, but like Xanadu is a case where I love ELO, I love the sound of ELO. That movie doesn't make a lick of sense, but in in musicals, it, it ultimately does come down to that soundtrack and that music. So Drew, why don't you transition us into 1981 with your favorite lyric from the jazz singer? Oh, my God. Uh, They're coming to America today. Wait, can I do one, too? I'm going to do one. Love on the rocks. Ain't no surprise. You got to be smoking, though, and have your shirt open to the waist when you sing that song. 
All right, let's move on. 1981, <laughs> not nearly as good. The Fox and the Hound, The Great Muppet Caper, Pennies from Heaven, Shock Treatment, This is Elvis. Honestly, aside from Pennies from Heaven, I, that's a negligible year. And I like The Great Muppet Caper. As a film, as a musical, it is nowhere near uh, what the Muppet movie was. The Muppet, to, and that's the problem. As they as their films went on, that music got less and less important. And Paul Williams is a huge part of why that first film is so great. And I do miss the the Muppet songs that mattered over the course of the rest of those movies. Yeah, for 1981, the number one musical by far is Pennies from Heaven, um, and uh, I. I American Pop also came out in 81. We re- I know we recommended that one. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and American Pop is, it kind of gets into that thing where that's more of a a songbook musical where they're leaning on other people's music and kind of putting it to, and those are interesting they're, because they're totally different in, in function. You're kind of playing off the connection people already have to those songs. And I do think American Pop, we talked about that as a sort of history of how pop music works and mattered to like a couple of generations of a family. It's really ambitious and it almost hits the mark. I just don't know if I agree with some of the musical choices they ended up making. And then we move on to 1982. This might be like the last hurrah for the musical in 19 in the 1980s for a few years. And it's might be because Annie did not make as much as they thought. Is that accurate? Would you say that definitely dented it, at least in terms of making the big adaptations? Uh, well, Annie was 82, and so was the, a film that you and I like very much, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Yeah. Forbidden Zone, which we discussed. <laughs> Grease 2. Yep. One from the Heart. Pink Floyd, The Wall. Yeah. The Pirate we. Movie, Starstruck, and Victor Victoria. I mean, do you, I, don't, I put it on the list, but do you, Victor Victoria is a musical, right? 100%. Absolutely. Blake Edwards understands how to stage classical numbers, so that has some big, giant numbers in it. So of 82, I know you like One from the Heart. Uh, I know I used to like the pirate movie. Uh, One from the Heart's a mess. I, I mean, that is, that's that weird experimental thing where they, the idea that, and I think Coppola did it twice. We'll talk about the other one in 84, but where he was going to rebuild the musical and he was going to figure out a brand new form for it and I know guys love to, filmmakers love that idea that they're going to refigure the musical. There's a reason they work the way they work. And I think ultimately the harder you push to break it, the more you kind of prove that it works a certain way. Right. And which, is, which do which you prefer? Do you prefer a, uh, a musical where the music is the, is part of the DNA, like an Annie, or do you prefer one that's more of a jukebox musical? Like that's more, you know, that, that, uh, we're dealing mostly with classical musicals here, yeah, but we're going to get into it as we get later in the decade, like stuff like Footloose. Oh, well, yeah. Can't, can't stop the music. Right. And yeah, Flashdance is not a musical. It's a drama with a lot of music in it and some dancing. It's funny because I don't know how you define that. That's that weird MTV influence. And we'll talk about the fact that they broke it. They broke what that was. And they're the closest to a real disruptor that I think ever happened to the movie musical was the idea of the MTV thing. But I love really well-written thematically sound musicals. That's why I like Best Little Whorehouse in Texas so much, is even though Dolly wrote some of that stuff for the movie, it all feels like it works together, and there's an emotional kind of through that works for that whole thing. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think why the best movie musicals work well is I think the best directors realize, look, a lot of people don't get to go to New York City and see a musical. Mm -hmm. So what, what I would like to do is give them that, adrenaline rush that emotional rush that yeah. that 
jazzy, excited feeling that people get as they watch a, a, a theatrical musical. Uh, and, and I think that Best Little Whorehouse does it. I think Little Shop does it. Uh, but not many films during the 80s did it. Uh, I kind of liked Annie as a kid, but it's not aged all that well for me. Grease 2, we've talked about extensively. I, I, I think that uh, we like that one a little more than history indicates and the original a little less. Pink Floyd, The Wall. That's one of the best. And Alan Parker is like Landis. He's one of the guys who, if you're talking about movie musicals, you got to put him in the, the ranks like he matters. Drew, give me, uh, give me five, five words on the pirate movie. I'm not sure why it happened. Wait, that's six. You know what? I, I, I don't even know if I could do a podcast with someone who can't count words. I didn't say numbers were my uh, strength. It's not on my resume. Uh, and then Starstruck, which we both discovered and loved, and Vic- Victor Victoria, which, if it was a woman, I believe Drew would run away and marry her. <laughs> Am I right? Like, I wouldn't have known this before I started putting together the list for this episode, but 1982 is kind of where the musicals fell off the cliff for several years. Yeah, and I, and I do believe Annie was a very expensive disaster where, I mean, we talked about this, $10 million for the film rights in 82 was insane. Um, just an unbelievable number. And you have to be so big to justify that. And I just feel like it probably scared the shit out of studios. Like, you know, it almost killed them in the 70s with Star and with movies like that. So I think in general, they are expensive and scary propositions. You know what else is a scary and expensive proposition? Uh, no. The Pirates of Penzance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 83 also had Eddie and the Cruisers, uh, which we'll get to. Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which is wonderful. Uh, the Return of Captain Invincible, which is not. Uh, Rock and Rule, which is obscure, and we will soon cover that in, a, in an upcoming episode. Uh, and Yentl. I didn't get Barbara at all. And I'm at the point now where I appreciate Barbara Streisand's work. I'm not a giant fan, but I appreciate it. And I certainly get what her strengths are and what she does well. I want to see it again because I feel like I'll probably have a very different reaction to it as an adult. I saw it opening weekend in 83 and never since. Oh, yeah. Well, growing up in a, in a, in a non-religious Jewish household, what happens is around the, around the holidays, we start to get Jewish guilt. Uh, because we don't go to temple much and we're not very religious. So my grandmother and my mom and I would watch uh, Ten Commandments or Fiddler on the Roof or the Frisco Kid or uh, this. Something because it was almost as if a movie would recharge our religious batteries or something. Uh, and it didn't really work because I'm not still not a religious person at all. But uh, I am looking forward to revisiting Yentl. I remember very little of it, except like you, I was bored stiff by it. I have a question about Meaning of Life. You heard the news that they're doing Spam a lot as a movie, right? I have, yes. Meaning of Life. Do you think Eric Idle's ever going to try and turn that into a show? Let me tell you something. Not only, Beyond Eric Idle being a genius, I think he's known for squeezing money out of stones. He's turned a lot of existing Python properties into new properties. God bless him. And I think that if Eric Idle lived to be 115, he would definitely turn the Meaning of Life into a theatrical stage play. Oh, that reminds me. And then the other question, I think we missed this in 81, but History of the World. Now, I know it's not a I know it's not a musical all the way through, but it's definitely got the Inquisition, which is one of the biggest numbers that Well, that let raises a question, Drew. Does one uh, a novelty musical number equal a musical? Not really. <laughs> no, I'm glad you mentioned it because I love the Spanish Inquisition song. Here's been my process. That was released on a uh, and it was a what was it on? Was it on like one of those 
floppy mad mad magazine records but the inquisition song i had it on a 45 or on a, an album i don't remember i didn't even get it i didn't get half the jokes in the inquisition song then when i got older i found them offensive and now that i'm even older i'm i laugh at myself for, for, for finding it offensive <laughs> yeah i uh i love that number and and Mel Brooks, like Eric Idle, seems determined to turn every single thing he's ever done into a show. So I'd be shocked if History of the World isn't at least in discussions somewhere. Like, All right, so then we go to 1984. Now remember, 82 was we still had kind of like old school traditional musicals to an extent. And then 83 was uh, oddly, I mean, we had Pirates of Penzance. Let's not forget if we're talking about the end of the cinematic uh, uh, musical for several years, yep. Annie is to blame partially, but so is Pirates of Penzance, you know? Yeah, and, and Pirates of Penzance, I would say arguably even more so because it was that whole pay-per-view day-and-date experiment. And I think it just pissed every... Yeah, it pissed the distributors off, the audience didn't go for it. Like, that is one of those examples where, yeah, it's a brick wall. Okay, so for 84, uh, well, we do see the arrival of films like Body Rock and Breakin'. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Footloose, I don't count as a musical in any way, shape, or form, but oh, all right. Uh, Drew, now we're going to briefly touch on, I, I, I only want us to offer one word apiece on this film because we haven't covered it yet on the show itself. I'll say the title, you say a word, and then we'll move on. Give my regards to Broad Street. Obscure. Okay, as it's Paul McCartney one. Uh, we all, then in '84 we also had Muppets Take Manhattan. Yep. We had Purple Rain. Yeah, there we go. That is a real musical. Uh, we had Rhinestone. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh boy. Rhinestone. My name is Stallone, and I can sing country. No, I can't. Uh, and uh, Rhinestone, and then. <laughs> is that actually from the, that's a direct quote from the film, huh? What did they call it? A rock and roll fable? Uh yeah, Streets of Fire. Yeah. My list also indicates that Voyage of the Rock Aliens is a musical. So yeah. there you go. 84. Let's just focus on body rock and breaking, dance movies, more so than musicals, but there is the arrival of the hip hop new movie. And man, yeah, MTV. And and yeah, this is this is the year where it feels like it hit like a like a freight train, man, because you're right. It none of these footloose is not a traditional musical in any way but uh, yeah it's not a musical at all uh, but, music but, and dancing features prominently in the film but that doesn't make a movie a musical i don't know i don't i don't know if i believe that because i think there are entire sequences in that movie that are driven forward both plot and character wise entirely by song and dance and yeah they're not singing the songs the songs are songs that they're either listening to or that are played under the the film but it's still like driven by music. That whole scene in the the factory, the famous "I'm dancing and I'm having a tantrum" scene. I mean, it's goofy and it's very silly, but it is the big moment for that character in terms of him. Kind of that's where you realize who he is and what's important to him. And so I I don't know that and Flashdance both are about people whose lives really only happen when they're dancing or in the middle of a musical thing. So I don't know how to define them. Yeah, it's interesting that the movie musical kind of went fallow for a little while at the same time that MTV was on the rise. Uh, and maybe that was the direct result, re reaction to, you know, kids are into musicals. Oh, but unfortunately, the musicals are two and a half minutes long and they only cover one song. But uh, and maybe uh, film producers saw that as 
this is, you know, musicals, long form musicals are not what young people want. And I think maybe MTV kind of fed into the whole musicals aren't cool. For, that was temporarily prevalent. But dude, did you go see Purple Rain in the theater that summer? I did. That was that was crazy. Like that atmosphere that summer, because we I ended up, I think, seeing it three or four times with different groups of friends. And it was it was electric every single time. And I that should have put the, the lie to bed that we didn't want musicals. We did. We just wanted musicals that we identified with or that we felt. Yeah, and we didn't want our grandmother's musical. Yeah. That that was the thing. Dude, Purple Rain is fairly traditional in terms of story. It's he's a singer. She starts working at the club. He has a rival. They fight over the girl. He finally gets the girl. I mean, it's 1930s standard story stuff. It's just dressed up in a very different way. And, you know, Vanity doesn't look like Ginger Allen. So it's it's is an evolution, but I don't think it's a different thing. And I think it's weird that there there felt like it was a demarcation line where they wouldn't make them, even though we kept telling them we wanted them. Yeah. And I also think that uh, every movie, any movie is difficult to make, but I think musicals are particularly difficult. And if you don't have filmmakers who are really excited and a marketplace that's ready to accept it, they're tough to mount. And, and, and we'll see now we get into a, uh, I mean, you're getting musicals like Rhinestone for Christ's sake. Is that a musical or is that just a comedy that has some music in it? Well, see, and that it's a, it's a it's a real argument to have. I think that uh, in that case, because it's built around somebody like Dolly Parton, I would say that qualifies as much as the stuff they built around fifties or sixties dance song and dance celebrities. Right, but it's just so funny because like the the last uh, the last big like um, like Broadway type musical turned movie was Annie in eighty two. And then in 85, when this film came out, I remember that the reaction was like, musicals have been gone forever. And I, and it, and the film where I'm talking about, of course, is a chorus line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your thought on, what are your thoughts on that film? I like that film a lot. And I think it is, um, you know, it's, it's works very differently than it does on stage. And if you've ever seen a chorus line staged, part of what makes it so elect or so alive is the fact that you're in a theater and it's people standing on a stage the characters are supposed to be so you feel like you're actually there like it is more intimate than most shows um but the film works as a big film and i think attenborough he's one of those guys where you brought him in to make the down the middle version of something you never brought attenborough in if you wanted him to shake it up and he did he made exactly the movie they hired him to make yeah i remember uh, very distinctly, when A Chorus Line came out, one of our teachers in school, Mr. Teplitz, who was amazing, and I'm, I'm assuming he's uh, passed away by now, but he was the best high school teacher I ever had. And he said, I've seen A Chorus Line at least 15 times on Broadway, didn't care for the film. And it was this, we talked about it back and forth, and, and I hadn't seen the movie because I really had no interest at that point. And uh, uh, I said, well, it, it, could it just be that, you know, the, I didn't say it this way because I wasn't that smart back then, but could it be that the limitations of cinema, you know, are like, hold it back. Whereas the freedom of stage is what allows a, you know, a musical to really connect with an audience. And he was just like, wow, you're and I'm like 14. He's like, that's really insightful. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, and I, he was one of the first uh, high school teachers who talked to me about film. And I, I really believe that he's, he's one of the main reasons I ended up writing about film because he was an awesome teacher. God bless you, Mr. Templitz. I can't imagine that for many people who see something live, see a live production of something, that they end up loving the film. Because I think they they are 
you get married to that stage production. And I know people where like they still bitch about Amadeus because they saw the original version with Ian McKellen and they saw a as Solieri and they're like, oh, yeah, well, that's the performance. I mean, that's what it was. And they can't see the movie because they've got the other thing in their head already. And I think a lot of live stuff is like that, where when you have that live experience, it's pretty special and personal. Dude, now it's not on my list, but I'm glad you mentioned it. Do you count Amadeus as a musical? I don't. I think that is a movie that is set in the world of music, but there, there's no real emphasis on performance in that film. It is it is the back. Uh, yeah, so 85 was, you know, it was, gosh, it's been so long since a musical. Here, a chorus line's going to bring in the adults and make musicals cool again. And, mo- and a chorus line bombed. Oh, yeah, bombed hard. And the stuff that did make movie make make money that year was, again, it was the hip hop stuff. There was and they were making those so fast and so cheap. Uh, Breaking, Breaking 2, Beat Street. Those things were just super fast and and they cost nothing. So I think that was also very attractive. at that. Right. In 84, like you said, we had uh, uh, Body Rock, Breaking, Breaking 2. In 85, we got Crush Groove. And uh, and for the kids, we also got Sesame Street Presents Follow That Bird. (laughs) it's a music it's a musical it is and it was the last of the big that's entertainment movies came out or one of them came out that yeah uh that dancing came out this year and i saw that theatrically and i that one of the reasons that bummed me out that year was because seeing those numbers on a big screen was one of the first times i got to see that stuff not panned and scanned not cropped for television not fucked up and i I, that's, I am convinced that that's why film critics love those compilations so much, just for that reason. Yeah. Well, and it, it for me, was the education in how you shoot dance and realizing that by watching it panned and scanned it on television, I'd never seen dance shot properly, which is you have to see the whole person and you have to see the feet and you have to be able to see the move and you have to see the space they're in. and To hold that. a once shot you, for longer than 1.6 seconds. Oh, my God. Once you do that, once you have that experience in a movie theater – it changes the way you watch musical numbers because you realize what they are, which is their their visual poetry done right. I can I am probably the worst dancer on the planet. I, I I used to have dreams as a teenager that I would walk into like the prom and just dance like Ren from Footloose, and everyone would be like, "Scott, holy shit!" I am the worst dancer ever. Forgot where I was going with this. Well, I fall. I dance like I'm falling down the stairs. So you and I should probably never assault a floor together. I figured out where I was going between me spazzing out like a lunatic and you falling down the steps. A good editor could make us look like dancers yeah. on stage. They couldn't. <laughs> no, no. That's one of the reasons that I think people got so hilariously outraged when they found out Jennifer Beals didn't do all of her dancing and flash dance. There was a point where I think we had a we held faith with movie stars that at the very least you did your dancing. You know, not we know that there's stunt people, we know that sometimes they dubbed voices, we know all that. But dancing was dancing. <laughs> I don't understand getting angry at that. The character is dancing, not the actor, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I do remember I like I think that's one of the reasons that people like Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire they're still sort of canonized is because when those guys move into those things when those when th- those when oh my god when uh Sid Charisse dances it it's everything. And so I do I I wonder did we lose a generation of people that because they didn't go through the studio stuff they didn't go through that kind of studio training we just didn't have movie stars that could do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and to our uh, younger or not even older listeners who are unaware, Drew mentioned That's Dancing. There is a trilogy of films called That's Entertainment. 
Yeah. Uh, if you really want a quick primer, a, a wonderfully entertaining primer on old school movie musicals and classic cinema, watch those movies. Keep a notepad next to you and any one that sounds or looks awesome. Write the title down. Yeah. Uh, that's what those films are great for to introduce you uh, to a, sa- a sample play, a sampler sample plate. Platter. Yeah, sample platter of uh, of all these sequences, and they are phenomenal compilations uh, or anthologies. Call them what you will. Um, a work a work table of dance scenes, if you will. So check those out. If Annie uh, created the trouble and a chorus line compounded the trouble, Little Shop of Horrors saved the day. Yeah, uh, because uh, again, you know, we're, we're now all right, we, also in this year we got Under the Cherry Moon, uh, Labyrinth. True stories, great. Absolute beginners. Two Bowie films this year. Two. And for kids, we got what? American Tale. Yeah. And, and My Little Pony, the movie. My question is this, Drew. They were on. They were shooting Little Shop when Chorus Line came out. What do you think they thought when they opened the paper and saw the reviews in the box office for Chorus Line? I bet they didn't care. And here's why: because the show Little Shop is such a fuck you, thumb in the nose to a sort of traditional Broadway at that point and wasn't a big Broadway show. These days, you know, stuff that sounds like Little Shop is establishment. That is Broadway as big as it gets. But it was kind of the antidote to Broadway back then. And there was a punk sort of scrappy attitude to the way that show was staged and the way it was written and the fact that they sang about, I mean, the dentist song and stuff. That is not what Broadway was singing about. So the fact that it was about murder and the fact that it was... Uh, staged the way it was with a giant talking plant, all of that made it feel so weirdly left of center from what really did feel like, even if that stuff tanks, that's not what we're doing. So I think they had to just keep their head down and just make their weird little movie. Can we talk about Ellen Green for a minute? When she speaks in that film for the first time, it's one level of, wow, oh my God, what what just walked through the door? And I, and I had seen Ellen Green and other stuff, but she never registered like this. And then that voice starts, and then the first time she sings and you realize what the real voice is. Oh, her voice, her singing voice is astonishing. What I was always curious of is on stage, did she do that speaking voice? She must have. And, and but she- Imagine how hard it must be to do that voice on stage. Because there are so many ways for that voice to crack and go left or right and not. And you go, cut, let's do it again on film. On stage to do that squeaky, breathy voice on stage must have been unbelievably difficult. Well, she's she, it's an impeccable performance. And the casting of her and Rick Moranis together pays off in somewhere that's somewhere that's green. That song that she does about him and then suddenly Seymour, which they do together, um, it suddenly turns this crazy, weird, goofy murder musical into the one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking things of the 80s. And, I mean, Rick Moranis makes you cry in that film. We didn't even know that he did that. that I really, that the, I don't know if Frank Oz would have been the perfect, which he is, the perfect director for this movie if he hadn't spent all his years doing silly and a little subversive as far as Muppets. Yeah. Uh, You know, that like the Muppets are not just standard Barney silliness. The Muppets have a very subversive, unexpected, avant garde, out of left field sense of humor. And without that sensibility, I think Little Shop of Horrors could have turned out looking like a chorus line with some special effects. 
Yeah, well, and nobody else would have taken the time to shoot the puppet the way he did. It's the greatest puppet. By the way, it is the greatest puppet performance of all time. And I I still don't know how they did it. I've never seen the actual, I don't like documentaries. One of the craziest things is they shot a lot of it, a lot of the close-up mouth work for the full-size Audrey at half speed. And they had to teach the actors to lip sync at half speed to their earlier recordings. Uh, there's bits with not even, I don't mean the lips where those are articulated lips, special effects. I mean, the mouth opening and closing in time is astonishingly yeah. good. It, it's, no, it's unbelievable. Perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. It's it, it is a perfect lip sync and it's a perfect character performance by that puppet. Let's save some for the, uh, for the later 86 episode uh, real quick because 87 has almost nothing. Talk. Let's talk briefly about the music in Labyrinth. Everything I do, I do for you. Yeah, it's not it's not great music, but it's it's perfect for that film. Yeah, it's perfect for the film. He slinks around corners while he's singing in his awful cod piece. And um, and it's funny because his number in Absolute Beginners is the only thing that really stands out, too. He knew what he was doing. And he was a video monster by that point. Like Bowie got video as well as anybody from that decade. And I think both of those films really point out that he knew what he was doing. And he had kind of not only brought his acting thing to music videos, but then when he did it on film, he understood that, man, I we've changed the game. This is what modern musicals are. I think he got it. Yeah, David Bowie is uh, somebody as a kid. I didn't really get the appeal. I think you needed to kind of like know a little bit about David Bowie's background to yeah. really appreciate. And uh, now I love the guy. I think brilliant musician. Were you a fan of true? Were you a fan of true stories at all? Not until I was older. No, really? I wasn't really into the talking heads until I was in my 20s. And true stories is amazing. It is a shot of adrenaline. It, that's the best way to describe it. That's my first John Goodman moment where I was like, who is this guy? Why is he awesome? And, well, I see more. And John Goodman in True Stories, if you're a fan of his work but you don't know that movie, terrific performance by him. Wonderful, eccentric little film. I wish I loved Under the Cherry Moon more, though. Oh, God, that thing's a tire <coughs> fire. Let's move on. We'll talk yeah. about Under the Cherry Moon later. Yeah. 87, to my estimation, has two musicals worth yep. speaking of. Two. Well, two and then two minor ones. One... The dancing that is dirty. Oh, yeah. That is proof that when they connect, they connect like very little else. Dirty Dancing was so big and so the audience was so passionate that when that thing came out on video, my theater still played it for another two months. And there were people that showed up to see it in the theater after it was on video. All right. I, I'll, I'll probably will. Maybe I'll tell this anecdote again. But Dirty Dancing was a pretty influential film for me because... I would not have gone to see that by myself, but I had a group of friends and we always, almost always went to the movies on Friday or Saturday night. And I almost always picked the movie being me, of course. Uh, and then my sister's friend, Melissa said, we're going to pick the movie this week. And I, I remember thinking, Hey, cool. They're into it. They'll pick the movie. And they picked dirty dancing. And I thought, all right, looks like a girly movie, whatever I was. I sat, I was enraptured by it. You, I, I mean, I was, Probably, I don't remember this far, I was probably reluctant to admit that I liked it, but I definitely did. And now, I have Scott, not seen it. Yep, I've not seen it in many years, but I, I am very grateful because it showed me, A, uh, don't be selfish when it comes to movies. Let other people pick a movie. And another very important thing for a 16 or 15-year-old kid is you might like something that doesn't 
look interesting. That's the key. When you're 15, you need to learn that lesson. That I had no interest in this movie, and I did enjoy it. I had a good time. Well, to be fair, though, you you had fallen in love with the dance instructor at a cat skills camp when you were younger, and you know, I did. And nobody I puts me in the corner. <laughs> Do you still speak with him? Whom? The 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 dance instructor. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and then um, uh, and Drew. Now here's a film of many directors that I have always been curious about, but have yet to sink my toe into. Why don't you discuss really quickly what is Aria? This was one that I saw in the theater and then I tracked down when it came out on video. And it's like any anthology film. There's good stuff and bad stuff in it. But Aria is um, 10 short films by different filmmakers that are accompanied by famous pieces of opera. So you have some of the biggest pieces of opera from Turandot and Pagliacci and Tristan and Isolde. And it's directed by Robert Altman and Jean-Luc Godard and Derek Jarman and Franck Redam and Nicholas Rogue. Yes, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, Ken Russell, and um, yeah, Julian Simmel. It's, it's an opera anthology, it. right? Basically, yeah. an opera. Yeah, okay. And it's got and it's got a ton of young, familiar faces. Um, I remember loving the Bridget Fonda uh, segment, which is beautiful and and striking. Uh, Tilda Swinton is in the Derek Jarman sequence, and it's really something. Oh, else. see, and now I'm looking forward to this because nothing would have convinced me to watch this when I was 16. Uh, and I just never crossed my path since. And I always you, you see it because it has 10 directors. And, you know, so uh, it, it shows mean, up on a lot of filmographies. There's an entire sequence in here that's like a bedroom farce with Buck Henry and Beverly D'Angelo. And it's it's all over the place, but it's really interesting and it's definitely worth your time. I'm going to I'm looking forward to watching Aria. Uh, and then for the kids in 87, we had the Brave Little Toaster, yep. which is a good cult favorite as far as like kids who saw it in the 80s remember this film very fondly i think that's the case that's one of those that yeah definitely uh there's a real fondness for it and then also the chipmunk adventure yeah and canon was doing those really low rent musicals they did a bunch in the 80s they did a beauty and the beast and they were i don't know if you've uh, if they did a frog prince they did a puss in boots i don't know if you've ever seen any of them they are disturbingly weird and kind of trashy euro we'll cover a couple of them because they did get theatrical releases but dude they're this is what they thought children's musicals were before disney kind of rebooted everything all right drew before we move on to 1988 i would like to hear you ex- react to this title the Return of Bruno. An avalanche of smug. Oh, God. That's Bruce Willis when he had his I want to be a, a, a musician, period, kids. Everything I do is adorable. Uh, and, and yeah, this was a, in 1987, the, the pinnacle of Willisness. Uh, as much as I still like Bruce Willis, man, is he a bad musician? Sorry. Uh, then we move on to 1988, and, and musicals had not made the comeback yet. But there was somebody out there actually two somebodies who were intent on treating musicals with some regard one of course is disney and they did oliver and company which is in my opinion a a very underrated disney feature a charming little film and then we also got from the awesome john waters hairspray we did and i think hairspray is it's the best john waters film in terms of if you want to introduce anybody to John Waters and have them get it. And it's not watered down. It's not fake. It's not him pulling punches for the sake of pulling them. He made the movie he wanted to make. And it just happened to be this joy machine. No, it's great. It's, it's a perfect explanation because it's, 
half old school weird John Waters and half I want to make a mainstream somewhat normal musical. And uh, I think so it is the charming. best of both worlds for him. And if you like Hairspray, you know, and, and you like the weirdness, you dig back and, and go watch the John Waters films pre prior to, to uh, Hairspray. And if you want to see stuff that's a little bit more uh, refined, a little bit more mature, I guess you'd say, then you go post Hairspray. We also got this year an underrated uh, I, a cult favorite musical starring Gina Davis and Jeff yep. Goldblum called Earth Girls Are Easy. Uh, we also got a new rendition. I remember this film very remember when it came out, but I haven't thought about it since that time. It's called the new adventures of Pippi Longstocking. It played the theater that I was managing. And, uh, it was one of those that I, I witnessed, uh, um, any good. It's a Pippi Longstocking film, dude. I don't even know how to answer that question. No, not really. And although it never came out theatrically, there was a movie that was made and then sort of, they didn't know what to do with it because it's such a bizarre film, but it technically belongs to 1988, and we'll talk about it at some point, uh, Moonwalker. That's what I was going to ask you. I was about to say, did you see Moonwalker at Disneyland? Not at Disneyland. Um, however, when... It was released on VHS, I remember that. And, and Laserdisc, because one of the times Michael came into Dave's video, one of the first times he came into Dave's video, we had just gotten two copies of it at the store, and my buddy, Scott Swan, who was a giant Michael Jackson fan and working at the time, uh, asked the manager, he said, do you mind if I buy one? And they said, no, you can buy it. So he bought it. He waited until Michael was finished. And he said, would you sign it? And Scott has it signed right now. He's got it framed right now in his house. He didn't just sign it. He signed it once with the wrong pen, had to sign it again in another place, and it didn't quite take, flipped it over, signed it again. So he's got this thing that's signed like three or four times by Michael Jackson, and it's Man, it is one of his prized possessions. And if you've ever seen the film, pretty much all it's worth is that cover that is signed because the film is a nightmare, man. It's a disaster. If you approach it like a feature length video, you might appreciate it, yeah, but it's it, not it's, much of a movie. It's not a movie. I don't know what it is, but it, you can tell that it's him looking at special effects and stuff happening in the 80s and going, ah, I want to make a movie and I, I want it to be all the Steven Spielberg movies at once and I want to be a car. And you're like, I, Michael, I don't. That's just weird. I want to be a car. Okay. Uh, you can turn into a car. You're Michael Jackson. You can do whatever you want. What are your thoughts on Oliver and Company? I like it. Um, it's it's weird hearing Billy Joel music in a Disney musical, but it's right as they were making. I. It's just not the because I don't think they had figured out yet what new Disney sounded like. So I like the fact that it kind of stands alone. It doesn't sound like old Disney. It doesn't sound like new Disney. They just made this one-off experiment, and it's kind of charming. To me, Oliver and Company, and I'm sure I bet Disney historians would would probably agree with me. Oliver and Company is the last 1970s Disney movie uh, because it feels like the premise and the animation style, and a lot of Oliver and Company feels like a 1970s Disney film, but it came out in 1988. Uh, in 1989, which we'll jump ahead to, is when Disney kind of reinvented their musicals with The Little Mermaid. Now, that's not taking anything away from Oliver and Company because the, the, the format and the structure feels very much like an old-fashioned Disney template, whereas The Little Mermaid did not, I don't believe. But as even though it does feel like a standard Disney vehicle from 1978, there's a lot to like in Oliver and Company. I like the characters. I think it's funny. Uh, I think the songs are very good. Uh, so as, as far as like the, the second run or the second-tier Disney classics, I definitely dig Oliver. And like I said, I, I like the fact that it's it's kind of signed by a, a songwriter. So it's got its own character and its own feeling. 
And uh, if you ever just needed an indication, the decade was not exactly kind to the musical genre in general. 1989, we kind of go out, the musical kind of goes out with a whimper. We uh, will get to Little Mermaid. Uh, We also got All Dogs Go to Heaven, which not a big fan of. Eddie and the Cruisers 2, which is kind of laughable. Nobody's a fan of. And a very underrated Carl Reiner film called Burt Rigby, You're a Fool. Now, I'm looking forward to revisiting that towards the tail end of it. Because I remember discovering it on VHS and being, you know, very simply, huh, I like this. There was a run of Warner Brothers movies that they just couldn't get to the theater. Like, they, I don't know what was going on at Warner Brothers at the time. But between that and Pitt and Teller got killed and this whole batch of stuff, they just barely got released. Like, it snuck out. And... Burt Rigby, You're a Fool, is way better than that. Robert Lindsay, the guy who stars in it, that it's kind of built around. When we get there, we're going to ask the question, just why Warner spent all this money to make a film and then didn't support him? Because they had a little movie star in their hand and they fucked it up, man. Uh, What are your thoughts on Little Mermaid? Let's close out with Little Mermaid. It's it's a titan for a reason. It's not one of my favorite films. And when that came out that, that year, I was... I have a theory that it doesn't happen anymore because Disney's much better now at keeping kids on the hook the entire time. But when we were growing up, there was a rite of passage that happened where for about five years, you stopped liking Disney at all. Disney's for babies. And you didn't watch their movies. You didn't talk about their movies. Their movies didn't exist. And then if you were an animation fan, you came right back to it about five years later when you realized, what the fuck am I talking about? Uh, Animation's fine. I don't get it. Um, this was right at that era. I was 19. I was managing the theater that I was that it was playing at, and it was all day long, just kid crowds, and I resented the movie more than anything. But looking at it now, it is so clearly the bone structure that everything else is built on for the rest of Disney's success that you have to admire it. It's it's an unbelievably well-constructed musical. It's a, I, I love The Little Mermaid. It might be top five Disney classics for me. My question to you is, if The Little Mermaid had been like a bomb or or a medium-sized hit, would we get Aladdin and the Lion King or would they have kind of just or and done more uh, Oliver and Company, The Great Mouse Detective, smaller scale? Disney 100% followed the audience. So the fact that Little Mermaid was a hit was the audience saying, we want that. And Disney went, oh, OK, if you tell us what you want, we will give it to you. And they got very good at that for the next ever. Um, But that was for them, that was really a lightning bolt moment because they were trying anything. They were desperate. And one of the great things we'll be able to do on this podcast is talk about that redemption arc that Katzenberg and Eisner built at Disney coming out of Paramount when Disney was essentially dead. And so we'll get to talk about the death of that company and then how these guys managed to bring it back. And there's no question, uh, Little Mermaid is foundational to everything else. What I find interesting is that in in the modern world, uh, you know, Disney now, they own Marvel, they own ABC, ESPN, they might own Fox uh, soon. And, and they're a juggernaut who makes Star Wars and Marvel and their own animated movies. So it's like they're just a mega juggernaut, not even a juggernaut. How you like yeah. that? So I, I love the fact that we can talk about Disney in our podcast in that they weren't always, they, they struggled, you know, they yeah. weren't always just not everything they touched turned to gold at every point. And I, that's why I think Disney is such a fascinating company is because 
In the 30s, they were unstoppable. In the 50s and 60s, unstoppable. And now, starting in 1989, again, unstoppable, but not, it goes in waves. They weren't unstoppable in every single era. People who think of them as monolithic should study both the history of Marvel Studios, Marvel Comics in general, and the fact that Marvel has gone bankrupt and belly up and as a company has had plenty of times they almost didn't exist anymore. And the same thing with Disney. These companies are monolithic now, but nobody handed it to them. It wasn't automatic and it didn't magically yeah, happen. A lot it's- of people don't remember is that Marvel itself, the comic book company, was on its last legs. That the, the, the they were a toy company, basically, by the time Avi Arad and Kevin Feige arrived. And, and the people, had, you know, I mean, you call it business or call it brilliant, but they realized, OK, this company has a lot of value, but is not currently valuable. Yeah. Let's buy it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, you know, Disney is if you're a film buff, you cannot escape Disney for both good and bad. But uh, as a film freak, I think Disney has done a lot more good than harm in the in the grand scheme. I, I love musicals now, although I didn't as a kid, and I will be forever grateful to uh, Little Shop of Horrors and a handful of other musicals this decade that uh, showed me that musicals are cool, and I got past that infantile 14-year-old boy mentality that musicals are corny. I'm with you, man. I, I really I miss them in theaters, and I will say that the rise of the movie musical again um, really made me happy as the 90s began, and I think that those little moments where we got glimpses of what they could be in the theater in the 80s kept me excited about the idea but desperate for stuff that was for me thank you so much for tuning in we are going to be attacking other subgenres in future bonus episodes of course we will have more interviews more special stuff thanks guys 